Maybe you want to write a book, launch your tarot business, or even fall in love. You'll learn neuroscience techniques and sacred rituals from mental health professional Bryn Bamber. That's me. Everything you need to take that next step towards your purpose. So I read Maya Schoenbach Long's book last month, What We Carry, and I loved it. I read it super fast. It's a very compelling read. And I reached out to her for an interview. She said, yes, I am so excited to share this with you. And this is the Instagram live we did together. Enjoy. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for making the time to, to chat with me. Oh my gosh, it's my pleasure, especially to be talking about mental health. And if there's someone out there who might benefit from this conversation or feel better, yeah, that's a pleasure for me. Yay. Okay. I'm so excited. So why don't you introduce yourself to anyone who doesn't know you, who hasn't read the book yet? Who are you? I am Maya Shanbag Lang. I am always interested in the question of who are you for all of us. I think that's a question we're all constantly negotiating. I'm the author of What We Carry, which is a memoir. I'm also the author of a novel and essays and short stories. This memoir that I wrote, I never expected to write a memoir. I was in the middle of working on my second novel when my mother came to live with me. Um, she needed emergency care. It was not a situation I'd ever thought about or that we had discussed. And on an impulse, I brought her home because I couldn't imagine the alternative, which was hospitalize her. And she was suffering from Alzheimer's. So it was within that sort of crisis of caring for her while also caring for my young daughter that I wrote What We Carry, which also delves into you know, my experience with postpartum depression, it touches on um, and gets, I shouldn't say touches on, it gets into um, the difficulties of the postpartum period, which I think don't get talked about enough. Yeah. And part of what I think really motivates me is the idea of being radically honest about what our experiences look like. I think we get so much pressure put on us, especially with motherhood, but really generally with life, to put up this sort of front that we are doing really well. Um, and with motherhood, that pressure is like on steroids. Right. So I think when we get really honest and talk about how we're actually feeling, it can liberate other people and make space for them and their experience. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm not a mother and somehow also reading the book for me, I think some of the pressures are just pressures as women generally that we feel. And I could really resonate with some of the challenges that you were navigating and that you are so radically honest about in the book. So I want to start by asking you, like, what has been your journey with mental health? I mean, I read the book, so I have my, <laughs> my idea of what that is. But I'm, I'm curious, what has been your, how do you see your journey with mental health? Yeah, well, so I'm the daughter of a psychiatrist. So I grew up with, you know, my mother would talk to me about her patients all the time. And she would get really upset when people had been misdiagnosed or, you know, over-medicated or under-medicated. And when she just had so much sympathy for their situations and for their suffering. And being out with her as a child, you know, if we were like out somewhere, people would accost us and be like, your mother is amazing. Your mother saved my life. And that was interesting to me because my mother was someone who didn't really talk about stuff. Indian American, I'm the daughter of Asian immigrants. So I grew up in a household where even though my mother was a psychiatrist, like, and she talked about her patients, but we never talked about stuff that went on in our house. 
I had an abusive father. We never like really even acknowledged the dynamics in our home. And then, so with my own mental health journey, you know, I was carrying around a lot of stuff as I think we all are. When I got to college, I had a depressive episode my freshman year. And I think part of that honestly was just sort of the freedom of, you know, when you get to college and you realize your family has shaped your identity a certain way and you kind of have this freedom to tell your story on your own terms. For me, that was this moment of like, almost like a collision of identities. Anyway, so my freshman year, I had a depressive episode and luckily responded to medication really quickly. And then fast forward about a decade after I had my daughter, I had postpartum depression and I was able to recognize it right away because of my first episode with the depression. The first time also that I had depression, I could recognize it because of stories my mother had told me. So yeah, and you know, in both cases, like one thing I wanna say to anyone who's dealing with depression right now, what really struck me, despite having had, you know, this mother who had like told me specifically about mental illness, it was shocking to me how debilitating it was and how it felt sort of like I had a broken bone that no one could see. And so, you know, whether that was me at 18 or whether that was me as a new mother, like to the outside world, I looked fine, more or less. You know, you can't see depression. So you see a woman with a baby and you see this person and you think like, oh, she's a happy new mom. And truthfully, like, I remember thinking that depression was more painful than any sort of physical pain I had endured. And just getting out of bed felt like this monumental task, not in some like hyperbolic, angsty way, <laughs> but like, it, like I had moments where I thought like, if the house were to catch on fire right now, I don't think I would get up. Wow. Which is, you know, and especially as a new mother to have that thought, I was like, oh my God, how can I even be thinking this? But depression really does take over the brain, especially when it's acute depression and you sort of become hostage to that voice. Yeah. So I think that's really important for anyone who's suffering to, to acknowledge your own pain and to know that it's real. Like if you saw someone with a full leg cast who'd broken their femur, you wouldn't say to them like, Oh, have you tried going for a walk? <laughs> <laughs> some sunshine? You'd be like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. You know, like, talk to me. This must be really hard for you. Similarly, if you, you know, for people with depression, it's just like that full leg cast. It's just an invisible cast. Right. So what would you say to folks, I think, with the pandemic and I'm in Canada and, you know, where I am, we're still in full lockdown here. I'm not sure what it's like exactly where you are, but folks who are struggling right now, I want to know like what helps you in both those episodes. Is there any kind of wisdom you can share from your experiences? Oh my gosh. Well, so the pandemic, you know, the idea of, you know, some of like depression's most haunting aspects and feelings, like, loneliness and isolation and the idea that we don't have anyone like those ideas can really take hold with sort of more grip you know when we're quarantining and when we don't have access to other people so there are a few things I would say first of all I'm a huge proponent of therapy I think everyone if possible and if they have the resources should be in therapy and I think that's true even when things are going well. So right. for me, therapy, I don't equate it with like, you go to therapy when something is wrong. I think it's the same way that like, when a sports team starts winning, they don't fire their coach. Like you right. need your coach just as much at any, no matter where you are, you need the coach. So I think, you know, one of my big hopes is that one day we will completely eliminate any sort of stigma associated with therapy and not equate it with weakness or with not being strong enough on our own. And that instead, 
like, we'll think of it as like, oh, good for that person for seeking out resources. So yes, therapy, I'm a huge fan of. I'm also, you know, I think there's been way too much stigma surrounding medication. Somehow in the United States, especially, we have this notion out there that like, there are too many people taking antidepressants, for example, and too many people like playing around with medication. And I think if you have had the experience of being depressed and then having the depression lift because of medication, which for me, I remember specifically it was this feeling of like electricity returning mm. after a storm, like suddenly the lights were on again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the matter of just like a couple of weeks, I suddenly like was the person jumping out of my bed to like go see my baby and to, you know, I felt all the things that I'd been wanting to feel. And I realized like, oh, it's, it's not my fault that I felt that way. It's not my fault that, you know, I had all these thoughts and emotions and, and my depression was quite acute, you know, so to have it lift, it was just like an amazing thing. I remember feeling so indebted to science. <laughs> science is amazing. <laughs> Thank God for science. Yeah. And I, you know, when I work with clients, I have some clients who see a psychiatrist as well, and they're doing that journey with their psychiatrist. And then I have other clients who aren't on that, on, on the meds journey at this point, because they don't want it or they don't need it. And yeah, I think it's so important to speak about it because even some of the clients I work with who are on meds are like, I shouldn't be on this or I should get off of it quickly. I think there's no one right answer for anyone. And, you know, you really have to feel into what's happening for you and what's going to support you. And I think a good psychiatrist helps you on that journey, right? Like takes your feedback about how different things are, what the side effects are, etc. But yeah, I'm so glad that you're talking about it. Because you know, I think it gives people permission that it's okay and it can be incredibly helpful at certain moments. And I want everyone to have choice, you know, with taking it or not, but not from a place of shame or not making that choice because we feel ashamed or taking the medication and then feeling incredibly ashamed that we're on it. Right. Yeah. At the end of the day, if something helps you, that's the important thing. And yeah, too often we, you know, even when the thing is helping us, we'll have like guilt about it or fears about it, um, not wanting to share it. So this is what I mean by radical honesty. I think when people, to the extent that they're comfortable, say like, actually, yeah, I had horrible postpartum depression and, you know, was at the lowest I've ever felt in my life at exactly the point when I felt like I was supposed to be the happiest that I've ever been. And yeah, to say you know, I saw a therapist who I actually continue to Zoom with. So the therapist who's in the book. Oh, um, really? Yeah. That's so, so cool. This is like a funny side story. This is a total tangent. But so I used to live in Seattle. I now live in New York. Like the first half of the book or so, the first third takes place in Seattle. And I talk about this shrink who I saw during my postpartum depression, who asked me some questions about my mother that I was not prepared to answer at the time. And I remember having sort of my Indian mother's voice in my head. She kind of saw people as like walking test tubes where she just thought like, okay, if I get you on the right medication, you'll be functioning again. She viewed people very clinically and was less into like talk therapy. Mm -hmm. And so I had her voice in my head where, you know, he was like trying to ask me about my life. And I was like, no, 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 just give me the meds and I'll be fine. Right. You're like, what's the chemical pH that I need? Yeah. I, you know, being the daughter of immigrants, I often have like an overly pragmatic view or I used to, I should say, where, you know, it's sort of like taking a car into the mechanic and you just want to get fixed. That used to be my view of mental health. <laughs> And after I wrote the memoir and after it came out, you know, the funny thing about writing down what's happening to you is that it opens a can of worms and you continue to process this stuff. Yeah, my shrink actually read my book and listened to the audio version and then we reconnected. Oh my God. So yeah, I now Zoom with him. He's still in Seattle. 
And this is the other thing I would say about the pandemic. I really had apprehensions about what it would be like to Zoom for therapy, mm -hmm. given how personal that is. And I felt like, oh, my God, I don't want to be doing this over the Internet. But it, actually, it's like that sort of aspect of it has just, like, vanished. I no longer think of it as Zooming. And when we have our hour together, I look forward to that so much because I feel supported and I feel like so I'm someone who is functionally an orphan um I don't have parents mm. in my life mm -hmm. I'm now divorced and I'm a mother I'm happily divorced we're good co-parents and all that and I'm a mother so to have one person who is a support figure in my life reliably that is an amazing thing and yes I have amazing friends and I have you know, other people in my life and communities and the writing world and whatever, but like, it's different. Yeah, I can relate to that. My therapist lives in California and I live in Canada. I think one thing about mental health that I want to say to everyone is that finding the right fit of your mental health practitioner is really important. Finding someone who you can trust and who you like, frankly, is really important because I think sometimes people will have like one or two negative experiences with a mental health practitioner and then just kind of put it aside as like that doesn't work or that's like really expensive and bullshit, which I understand. And, you know, I've had different experiences with different people. And I was in California for a couple months and was recommended through a friend to go to this woman's workshop and I went to a workshop that she ran for a group and I was seeing a different therapist at the time but then I just decided to see her while I was there for those few months and then ultimately decided to switch to her so I've seen her on zoom basically the whole time for me the fit was more important the fit of the person was more important than it being in person. Fit is so important with therapy. And I also think, you know, in the same way that um, with books, when you're reading a book, it might not speak to you at a certain moment in time. And it's just, you know, maybe later that same book does speak to you and move you. And you're, so I think the same thing can happen between patients, clients, and therapists or psychiatrists that sometimes at that particular moment in time, like looking back my when I first met with this shrink in Seattle, the questions he was asking were so good that I was really resentful of them. And I thought, and my mother, who was um, with it at the time, she was like, yeah, that, you know, he's probably a quack who just like wants your money, but keep seeing him for a little bit until the meds kick in. And that was our kind of like joint, Agreement. <laughs> yeah. yeah, which like, and I remember my mother, I mean, if you want to get into like, weird medical, you know, my mm -hmm. mother called my psychiatrist to overrule him on the question of like, my medication and my dosage. She was like, I'm an expert in this. He's got this all wrong. Wow. Yeah. And you know, to me, that's like a very Indian thing. I see that we have a couple of Indian and Indian American people here. Often I think in Indian homes and South Asian homes, the way of showing love is through like medication. So I remember like mm. when I was a kid, I don't mean this in some weird way, but like when I was a kid, if I got a cold, my mother would like stuff me full of antibiotics. You know, because she'd be like, oh, it would come from a place of like worry and concern. And like, we don't want this to turn into something. Here's erythromycin. And yeah, I think like, there's, or food. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. And it's sort of like, you know, my parents never showed affection directly. Mm -hmm. Like we didn't snuggle. We didn't have bedtime stories. We didn't do any of that. But it was like, yes, my mother would always ask about my health. Anyway, that moment of her overruling the shrink, I remember feeling like, oh, this is how she's like caring for me in this moment mm. trying to be here for me is by asserting herself yeah wild 
I want to read this one of these quotes from the book. This is from page 23. You say it's right. I guess it's when you're writing about when you're pregnant and you write, I'm frightened, but as a mom, I'm not supposed to feel that way. I'm supposed to intuitively know how to handle an infant. I feel isolated, but I'm not supposed to feel that way either. I'm supposed to radiate contentment. I don't know how I internalize these messages. I only know that when people elbow Noah, who's your, your, the father of your child, and say, how are you? Nervous? Scared? I want them to do it to me. So, yeah, I wonder if you can speak to that kind of double standard that you experience. Absolutely. I mean, when people find out that, um, you know, a couple is expecting, and I don't want to, like, assume straight couples, you know, right. couples take all kinds of shapes and forms, but, like, if it's a straight couple, you know, often they'll say to the guy, like, oh, my God, how are you feeling? Are you scared? Are you nervous? Are you going to be the kind of dad who changes diapers? Are you going to... There are all these questions, and mothers do not get these questions. No one... Have, would ever say to a mother, are you going to be the kind of mother who changes diapers? There are plenty of kick-ass career women out there who, you know, are out in the world doing amazing things and are in a position where they're not going to be the kind of mom who changes diapers. And I don't think, you know, I think we have so much judgment attached to women. It's sort of like women mothers cannot choose correctly. If we choose ourselves, we're being selfish right? Like if we're career women, it's like, oh, don't you feel guilty? Right. And when we're stay at home moms, it's like, oh, that's what you're doing with your life. So it's kind of a no win situation. If we look at it from that angle, one of my favorite stories is a friend of mine told me this story about, so this is her friend is a practicing psychotherapist who had seen a client for years and years and years, like over a decade. And this particular client really never talked about his mother. Hmm. And even if like the mother was visiting, it seemed to like go really smoothly. One day they were having their final session because the client was going to be moving. And she said, you know, anytime I've asked you about your mother, you seem like, it seems like you guys have this really healthy relationship. She never stresses you out. And he said, you know, yeah, the thing about my mom is that she's really happy. And after she gave birth to me, she went on a cruise for three weeks. And what she said to, I don't know the details of her, you know, but what she said to like her, the people around her was, I just made a human in my body and then pushed that human out of my body. And I am tired and I'm exhausted and I want to rest and recuperate. So I'm going to go on a cruise for three weeks because I know that this baby will be fine in your care and this is what I need and I will come back restored and rested and having slept and my son will have a happy, healthy mother because of it. And this story blew me away when I heard it. <laughs> and, you know, like a grown person talking about his mother, so it was decades ago. And I still think even right now in 2021, the idea of a mother doing this, is like, what? Yeah. Probably more so now because we have so many opinions and blogs and whatever about what motherhood should, you know, should look like. And I think when we really try and get rid of the shoulds of life and instead think about like the best thing I can give my child is a happy parent. And unless I model happiness, my daughter is not going to know how to give herself happiness. I think in that there's like an interview at the back of the book. I can't remember who you're interviewed by, but I think you, you say something about, and maybe you can say more about this. Part of your, you becoming a writer was to show your daughter that women can do what they want or women can follow their dreams. Am I getting that yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Well, since your book's so funny, you know, I had always thought of myself as a writer ever since I was a little girl. And so many of us have these dreams. It's like, oh, I always thought about it. And when I was pregnant, I was suddenly like, wait a minute. I've never tried doing this professionally, even though I feel like it's who I am. 
And if I want my daughter to pursue her dreams, like I didn't want to ever be in a position with her where I was like, oh yeah, I always wanted to be a writer and have her feel like the reason I didn't was because she came along. Right. Like what message is that? I gave up my dreams for you. And so instead when I was pregnant with her and then when she was born, I suddenly started looking at my life and my choices in a very different way. And I thought like, I want to show her that I went after this and that I tried and I might not be successful. I right. probably won't be successful, but I want to at least tell her like you were born and that inspired me to try and do what I'd always wanted to do, which is write a novel. And so I wrote my first novel under the worst circumstances. Like <laughs> my brain was not functioning. I was sleep deprived. I was not my sharpest self at all. But what I had was this newfound motivation and this desire to kind of be bold and be brave and embark into new territory because I wanted my daughter to know what that's like. I think pre-motherhood, it was really easy for me to dismiss my desires, my dreams, the things that women are not necessarily encouraged to pursue. And specifically having a daughter, I thought, oh, if I'm sacrificing myself, if I'm unhappy, if I'm like, that's the stuff kids absorb. They don't yeah. absorb our little lectures, even if they're like perfectly phrased. They right. absorb choices. Yeah, they, they see what you do. They see what example you're setting for them. And I think that is the most, well, you know, not the most, but a very impactful part of the impact of parents is the example that they set and how they treat themselves. So I love, I love both of these. I love the cruise and it blows my mind as well. <laughs> and I know, um, I don't know if you follow the comedian Ali Wong, but she said after the birth of her first daughter, I think she has daughters, she would like go to work and people would come up to her and be like, who's taking care of the baby? And just the fact that mothers yeah, are... No, no one says that to the, to the dad. Father, yeah, no one is like, I, No oh one ever. And there's this insinuation that like the baby is at home unattended or something, you know, like... Yeah. <laughs> no, there's so much judgment about that. There are follow-up questions, you know, when you say like, oh, I'm back at work, you know, the baby is and you explain, people will often follow it up with, well, do you feel guilty about that? Right. You know, it's you implied in the question, but sometimes they'll even be explicit about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Again, thinking of mothers in particular, and, and maybe you can speak to your own experience of this, who are navigating the pandemic, who are suddenly teachers on top of whatever else they were doing, and and I think that, I don't know all the specific statistics, but I think it's showing that a lot of this burden of home Zoom schooling or whatever it is, is landing on, on mothers more often than fathers. Is there anything you can share with folks who are struggling now? Yeah, I have so much to say about this. So I think even pre-pandemic, women were and are in a position of like just doing far too much. And, you know, in the book, I talk about my journey with weightlifting. Mm -hmm. And I remember learning that, like, so I had all of this lower back pain. I thought it was my lower back was too weak. It turned out, no, my lower back was kind of too strong. It was doing too much. And that's why it was in pain. So I think mothers are often like the lower back of the body, where we're overextended, we're strained, we're exhausted. And if that's true pre-pandemic, then, yeah, I mean, when I... With the title, What We Carry, I was thinking about how much we carry around. And then it's like, oh, my God, you're not carrying enough. Here's like 500 pounds more of, yeah, now you have to play teacher, tech advisor. Your spouse might be like working longer hours. You're already kind of a therapist to your spouse. You're an on-demand. You know, it's like all of these roles that you already were doing doubled and tripled and the ability to have a break went away right so or even going into work 
I've been talking yeah. to clients yeah. who are saying, I miss going to work. So I had a moment without hearing the kids in the next room <laughs> screaming. Yeah. yeah. So like part of what I'm a huge advocate for. So for, in my own case, ironically, the way that I got the partner and co-parent I always wanted was through divorce. And we had a very child sent, you know, I think divorce is another word like therapy and medications. It's word that we have like so many negative associations with where we immediately imagine some sort of like horrible courtroom contentious thing. And it's like, no, we had a very child centered divorce where it was like, you know, we're going to have two households now. We're still a family, but we're going to be a family with two households. I struggled so much with the decision of whether or not to separate. And during the pandemic, like during the first couple of months of it, my daughter said, mommy, I'm so glad I have two households to go to because Aww. I would go nuts, like looking at the same kitchen all the time. And I thought, oh my God, if only I could go back to like the version of me that was. And let her know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was like convinced I was going to destroy her life, you know, when in truth, as with writing the novel, it's like when you choose yourself and you prioritize your happiness, you model that for your children. For women mothers during the pandemic, I think the extent to which you can draw boundaries, I would tell friends of mine when quarantine was in like full effect and they were like longing to just like leave the house, but there was nowhere to go, especially during winter. And I would say to them, just say I'm leaving for an hour and like go in your car and park like a block and a half away during that hour and a half or whatever it is, like bring a book and just read or bring a journal and write in it. Do something that fuels you and restores you. We're getting the question, how's Corona here? I want to say quickly, the crisis in India has been Weighing on me doesn't feel like a strong, you know, it's like devastating. And I have been wrecked, frankly, thinking about mm. the crisis there. And as I talk about uh, America, you know, now that things are opening up here um, in India, it's real, a dire situation. So I start for India COVID relief and any post whatsoever on social media with the hashtag what we carry for number four, India earns a $4 donation to PATH, which is a nonprofit that's endorsed by the New York Times for COVID relief and procurement of medical equipment and supplies. The reason I chose the number four for what we carry for India is that one person is dying every four minutes in New Delhi. And that number is a way, I think, of putting the incomprehensible magnitude of suffering over there into like every four minutes, one person is dying and that's just in the city of New Delhi. Yeah, people, it can be any post at all. It doesn't have to be of my book. You can post like a picture of a banana, but just tag it, what we carry for India and that'll earn a donation. Yeah, and you, you have a page on your website if people want to learn more and donate to different causes themselves, so. Yeah. My website is mayalang.com and there's a button right on the homepage right. to, for India COVID relief. And there are, yes, you don't have to do this hashtag thing. You can there are, have a list of vetted resources and organizations that you can donate to directly, which is, of course, even better. Yeah, thank you for, for bringing that up. One other question I had was for folks who have a parent with Alzheimer's, like what, what, advice can you give to those people? So, you know, the first thing I would just say is that there are no scripts for how to be in the role that you are in. You know, like there's so much advice out there for new parents, probably too much advice, where you can, for any kind of parenting question you have when it comes to your infant or toddler, you can find like 5 million things where people will specifically tell you what to do and or at least, you know, you'll find that like, oh, I'm not the only person to be dealing with this versus the question of like how to assume responsibility for your parent and all of the awkwardness that arises from that and the feeling of like 
what do I do here? Should I or shouldn't I? How do I do this? You know, we're not prepared or equipped for that. And it can feel like just completely uncharted territory. There are no sort of milestones for the journey that you're on. So everyone's, whether it's dementia or whether your parent is just simply aging or, you know, um, I've heard from people from all walks of life who are just in a caretaking role in whatever capacity, often there are tremendous feelings of isolation and caregiver burnout, I just want to say, is a very real thing right. uh, where you feel fried and spent and like you no longer are in touch with yourself because you orbit around this other person. So I just want to acknowledge all of those things, that they are very real and that they are not light things to be navigating. And I think to do whatever you can to fuel yourself, feed yourself so that you, you know, it's so important. It's like that in the airplane in flight yeah. video when they say the thing about like, put on your own oxygen mask before you help others. And I always, you know, we, we all like smile and nod, but I always think like the mothers on the plane that's going to be a hard, like your instinct is to put the oxygen mask on your children first. But then I think like, oh, my daughter, I wouldn't want her putting on the oxygen mask for anyone else but herself. Like I'd want her to put her own mask on first when she's a grown up. And she can't know how to do that unless I've shown her how to do that. I hope some of that is helpful for any caregivers who are listening, because so much of it, I think when you're a caretaker, you just kind of feel invisible. And I remember people would ask me, how's your mom? And I so desperately wanted someone to say, how are you? How are you? And it was sort of like the how's your mom was like the proxy question or the, you know, how's she doing? How's her health? How's, and I wanted to be like, well, even though everyone has gotten used to me being in this role and that I'm her caretaker because she lives with me. I'm not used to it and mm-hmm. it's still exploding my world. And it's still, you know, every day it sort of became more strange to me in certain ways. So I hope anyone who's listening just feels sort of acknowledged and seen. And when you feel like you're on the other side of a wall or, you know, like there's this force field around you that's impenetrable because you are feeling isolated. That's when you need more than ever to do something that buttresses you or, you know, gives you a stronger sense of self. It's when you have the least time for it that you most need it. And Mm. whether that's writing or reading or whatever it is for you that, you know, kind of like fuels you, you know, going to a certain place that relaxes you, whatever it is. But to do that when you have no time for it, that's when you most need it. It's exactly the oxygen mask in the case of an emergency. Yeah, it's an emergency, you need your mask on. Exactly. And to walk around in an oxygenated state is not something to feel guilty about. So things we do to fuel ourselves and nourish ourselves, we sometimes dismiss them as being optional when in fact, no, to walk around as a human being who feels in touch with themselves, that's a gift to the other people around you. And a gift to yourself. And it's it's enough, you know, it's so hard. I identify as codependent. And I think it's so hard for those of us who have codependent leaning of some degree to be like, I get to take care of me because it's good for everyone else. And that's very motivating for me. But Mm -hmm. it's also it's okay to take care of me just for me, just because I want to take care of myself. Okay, this leads perfectly into the the quote from the end of the book that I wanted you to kind of say more about, which is, I benefited from the support I received. I benefited from talking to the shrink. I benefited each time I asked for help. I don't regret heading it, getting it. I regret the hard time I gave myself. 
I felt guilty when I could have felt free. This is something I still struggle with, by the way. Like, just because it's funny, there was a good friend of mine from childhood. I was talking with her and I was wrestling with this situation where I felt obligated to do something and I felt really conflicted and really sort of like paralyzed because I thought like, I feel like I owe this person these things and I don't know what to do with all of that. And she said to me, Maya, when the woman in the river chooses herself, that is everything. You know, she like quoted whatever the line is from the book. I don't even remember it. Often. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, yes, that's what I needed to hear in this moment. And like, we're constantly like relearning these lessons. It's not that we learn them and master them. And yeah, to this, I mean, still, I have trouble asking for help. I still have trouble thinking like, oh, I could make my life easier by doing that. And I'll still have this feeling of like, am I allowed? Like, is that okay? With like, you know, are the skies going to part and like lightning is going to strike me because I dared to choose myself. So that's a path that I continue to walk. And I think as with weightlifting, whenever I learn a new maneuver in weightlifting, it's so hard at first and it feels shaky, but then you get muscle memory. And I think the same thing is true for choosing ourselves and making choices where we prioritize ourselves. If you're someone who, yeah, I'm constantly by nature, like caring for others and sort of giving myself away. So to choose myself and prioritize myself goes against the grain for me. And it still feels new and kind of, you know, I, so when I'm wrestling with it, I have to kind of reach out to friends and, you know, sort of trusted voices who help me understand that getting support, getting help every time I've done it, you know, like your 90 year old self looking back will never say to you, oh, you should not have gotten help in that moment, <laughs> right? Like you're always like trying to zoom out and be like, yes, my 90 year old self would be like, dude, go live as expansively as you can, live as magnificently as you can, and don't get hung up on if it's okay, because yes, it's all okay. Yeah, and, and for ourselves and for the, you know, the example you are for your daughter and just examples we are in the world to all the people around us who we don't necessarily even know that they're watching, but there can be an impact when, and it's a radical thing. It's 2021 and I wish it wasn't this way, but it's still a radical thing for a woman to put herself first every time. Oh, yeah, and I think like for mothers in particular, but yes, for all women to choose ourselves and to have boundaries and to say no, all of that feels quite radical. And, yeah. but I think to myself now, like on an email, if I do a reply all and say, no, I can't, that someone on that thread might be like, oh, you know, <laughs> like you can open doors. Who does she think voice. she is? Yeah. And even for me to like, say like, please don't kill me, but I can't make it, you know, like that's sort of my instinct. And like, no, being unable to do something like that should not be the cause for someone wanting to kill me. Not at all. Um, I have one selfish question I wanted to ask for you. And it's selfish. And I think it does apply to people listening as well. But I have been working on a memoir probably for eight years or something. And I'm pretty terrified of publishing of particularly my family's response. So I wanted to ask, like, did you struggle with that? What was your journey? Because the book is so personal. How were you able to, to put it out there? For me, yes, you know, I get into unbelievably, like, vulnerable moments. And for me, the thing I always think is that, like, I'm not someone who ever wants to pretend to have answers. For me, I'm someone who is just very vocal about my questions and my doubts. That's something that just motivates me as a person. So the idea of, like, bringing someone into that space, even if it's someone I don't know, probably, like, the idea of some, like, anonymous person out there who desperately needs 
to feel solidarity or company in their loneliest, darkest moment, I so want to like be there with that person that that for me is like what lights the way when I'm writing and I'm somehow able to put on blinders and like not think about the people um, who might have objections to the story, might be offended by the story. And yeah, when I was writing my story, like no one in my family, you know, relatives, no one had known about like my father and his abuse. So exposing that and writing about it was scary. And part of what I have learned is that the parts of our stories and our lives that feel scariest to share are the most necessary. And when someone is courageous and talks with vulnerability and with real feeling about, here's this thing that happened to me, other people find relief in that. And it's sort of like we're all walking around with these like invisible wounds. And when you do that, it's sort of like you put glasses on and you see like, oh, I'm not the only one. Like that person has right. that blue mark and the other person has the blue mark. Like so many of us have dealt with these things. And the idea that we're not alone and that we're connected and that you can look at a person and never imagine that that person went through a certain thing or endured a certain thing you know, that to me is like an incredibly hopeful, you know, we're all deeply connected and intertwined in ways that we can't imagine. I don't know that I truly answered your question. I think. Um, no, you did. I mean, I think your answer is looking at who you can help as opposed to being controlled by someone's opinion. Yes. And at the end of the day, I would say, you know, the goal of a memoir is not to tell the story it's to tell your story. So when you own your own story, people can dislike it, but when you're really telling it from that core place of like, this is what I lived and experienced, no one can argue with that. Yeah, um, so so where can people get the book? Where where can they find it? Yeah, it's, you know, it's in all bookstores and major retailers and when it comes to books, I'm not a huge fan of Amazon. So if people are able to purchase through, if you're going online, big fan of bookshop.org, which is a website that um, where all the profits go to independent bookstores. So yeah, thank you. For anyone who's in Toronto, I ordered it to a different book list, which is a Black-owned bookstore here in Toronto. So that's a they have it you can order it through them and then pick it up and i think or have it delivered it's in most bookstores so find yeah, it it's in, all, it's in all bookstores it's in barnes and nobles and it's also in places like target and you know major retailers thank you for asking yeah is there anything else you want to share you want to promote before we, we say goodbye today i just want to quickly answer this question that you had a complicated relationship with your mother yes the details of it didn't even come out till much later. So I've continued to come to terms with it. I mean, I think, you know, I was writing this book at a certain moment in time and I've continued to process what I learned about my mother and who she actually was versus how I saw her. And I've since learned other things about her from relatives. Yeah, I continue to think about it. And I think the stories that we tell ourselves and that we carry around with us we're always sort of sifting through them and trying to make sense of them and think about how they affect our choices and our relationships. So I continue to grapple with that. Have I found other maternal figures to fill the mm. place? No. What I have found is my shrink in Seattle who takes <laughs> that place. So, you know, he's the person I can turn to to talk about the just the little things in life that you want a listening ear for. So I have found that. And of course, you know, I have wonderful friends and other people in my life, but I do think it's good to have someone that you can unload to. Yeah, I can relate to that. And just even for me, I don't know if you relate to this, but getting my therapist's opinion sometimes, which I know that they're not really supposed to or whatever, or there's, mixed messages around that but just to say 
to someone that I trust to be like, am I okay here? <laughs> Is this okay? And to have my therapist as a woman, to have her say, yeah, you're okay. You're human, you make mistakes, but you're okay. Yeah, it's funny that you bring that up. I specifically, you know, one thing between my current shrink and I is that we've said, I don't want advice because I, you know, I want to learn how to like trust in my own sort of instincts and impulses more and sort of grant myself permission and authorization more. So it's funny though, how often I turn, you know, I want to phrase the, the dilemma as like, what should I do? Like, right, right. Wrong and thinking, right, like that impulse is there. We want to be given like a manual on life and to know what am I supposed to do here? And I think trusting yourself is the goal. Yeah, and to, to clarify, she doesn't tell me what to do, but just I'm like, I'm going to do this. Is this okay? You know, it's just kind of the like, getting the reassurance yeah. of like validation. I'm not a horrible person, yeah. right? If I do this Absolutely. part of part of what I'm working through. So thank you so much. Um, I loved the book. I was ecstatic. If you like memoir, if you like stories, if you have a complicated relationship with your mother, definitely this book is amazing. There are a lot of plot twists in this book. I'll say. There are a lot of like surprising things that even when I was making my notes today, I was like, well, do I ask her? Is that a spoiler? I don't want to like ruin the book for folks. So we haven't, we haven't given any spoilers away. So definitely if anything we've said today has resonated with you, get the book. It's so good. Thank you so much. And thank you to everyone for tuning in. Yeah. Thanks everyone. Okay. Bye everybody. Take care, everyone. Thank you. If you resonated with this episode, I want to offer you a free private one-hour consultation with me. Through doing the deep inner work, my clients have been able to do things like quit the job they hate and land a job they love or get their first paying clients in their dream business and if they're a little bit further down the road, double their revenue. They've been able to fall in love and go to bed each night feeling satisfied and accomplished. In the consultation, we'll talk about what your dream looks like, what's getting in the way, and whether working together can help. Email me at brin at brinbamber.com to book.